Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. How are you all doing this morning? Good? Good. It's so good to be back. Uh, I've not been speaking for some weeks now. Thank you so much for the break. Not that you have a part in it, uh, but... But yeah, do appreciate uh, some time down to just uh, refresh and just, uh, you know, uh, come back to uh, a, a place of, uh, yeah, just fullness. Uh, folks, uh, we have a whole bunch of good initiatives uh, that, that Pastor Janice wrote out. And can, we, can I just say that uh, I don't think there's anyone on staff that uh, could have done uh, a more tender and gentle job of going through the lunch guide than Pastor Janice. And so... Uh, <laughs> Kudos and appreciate you, Pastor Janice, uh, because if any of us would have done it, it would sound like we were scolding you, uh, but no, we're not, we're not. Just guy, 12.30 to what, 3 p.m. And, uh, and all that good stuff. And so, yes, please do join us level five for lunch. Uh, it's really fun uh, and a whole lot of people down there, and uh, it's a good opportunity to just uh, get into the thick of community. Uh, folks, uh, Family Weekend, just want to highly plug that again. Uh, I don't mind if during my message you want to go on to the site to sign up because today is the last day. Uh, no, oh, Friday is the last day. Oh, sorry. Friday is the last day for sign up. Uh, and so please, uh, please, 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 if you are able to just sign up for at least one, uh, get to meet some new people. Just out of uh, curiosity, how many of you, uh, well, just, just to put it out as a question, what do you think or which event do you think has the highest sign up uh, currently? What do you think? Futsal, running? No, it's the beach cleanup. The beach cleanup has the highest sign up because all of y'all are gentle, loving, merciful, kind, and, and you love the environment and you love the world and you just want to be the hands and feet of Jesus and you're like, no, like, like away with this popia party and this self-indulgence. Like, no, Pastor Andre, like we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so I'm sorry and I hope to grow up to your maturity someday. <laughs> <laughs> well, but folks, uh, please highly encourage you to sign up for one. Uh, uh, you don't have to come to my one. It's fine. Uh, there are many, many good ones. And uh, just want to uh, make sure that you, you, you get into one. Well, folks, I, I have a, a whole bunch of ground to cover uh, this morning. I just want to uh, open up with a couple of comments on our teaching and, uh, based, and, and predominantly our pulpit ministry and how it's going to look like for the next uh, few months. Now, first off, uh, many of you are aware or many of you are the are, are ones who have uh, joined us in the last couple of years. And so we so love this new uh, energy and this new growth in our community. And, uh, and every Sunday, I'm meeting uh, new people. And so this is a real delight and joy. Uh, but one of the things that we feel as a teaching team uh, is this impulse to revisit uh, some old teachings and some old series that we have done uh, in years past. And, uh, you know, we, we feel it important because it brings our entire community to this common baseline. And so please don't feel that uh, the pastoral team is no longer working hard and coming out new teachings and we're just rehashing old ones. Uh, no, it's, it's in our heart that all of us will, will come back, uh, come together to the same baseline, be reminded of uh, certain truths, principles, values, and ideas that we've communicated uh, in years past. And so this is what it's going to feel like over the next few months. And the other thing uh, with regards to our teaching ministry and our, our pulpit time is we feel as a teaching team uh, this impulse to lean into uh, you know, teachings with regards to life together, to uh, community life. And don't we know that the church is not just to be an event or just a program or something that we experience. We are to be a people of God, covenanted together, a tightly knit community, pursuing the love of Jesus, pursuing his presence in our world. And the way we do life together as a community is in many ways a witness to our world around us. And so we need to pursue and discover what it means to do community, to do relationships really well. And so uh, we'll probably have a series on community, uh, I think a couple of months from now, but some of the teachings uh, that, that we're going to hear in the next few months uh, will be revolving around that topic. Are you with me, folks? You know, I'm just reminded this morning, even on my way here, of uh, the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, when he says this, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, can we hear the weight of the Apostle Paul's words in this line of Scripture? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
Now, over the last few weeks, uh, there have been many in our community that have been coming out to me uh, with dreams, with visions, with prophetic words and sensings. And many of them, you know, have this common thread, and that is this, that the unity of the church, the unity of this community is something that we have to intentionally preserve and pursue. And so, you know, it's in light of, you know, what we've heard from God and what many in our community have sensed on the Spirit that we are leaning into these set of teachings on community about how we are to do life together. And so this morning, I'll be speaking to you on the subject of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, folks, uh, many of you are aware that I have uh, gone to see a, a counselor and I've been seeing a counselor for some one and a half years now and it's been really enlightening and challenging all at the same time. Now, one of the things you do in these sessions is that often you would revisit your past. Uh, you know, you would, you would understand your family of origin, understand what kind of drives certain impulses, dysfunctions, behaviors, and patterns in your life. And oftentimes, when you revisit the past and you discover, like, hey, there are things in my past, events or stuff that people said or how I was parented or how I was treated in specific instances that has a bearing on who I am today. And whether we like it or not, the past indeed has a bearing on who we are in the present. And there has been no singular uh, thing or aspect of faith that I have found more challenging and, and, and has defined my spiritual walk and, and my pursuit of Jesus over the last six months than the subject of forgiveness. I found myself repeatedly in many instances needing to forgive people, forgive my parents, forgive my spouse, forgive myself. And forgiveness has been so defining uh, in my life, but particularly in the last six months, it has been challenging, and yet uh, it's been full of grace, full of joy, and full of the mercy of Jesus. So this morning, I'll be speaking to you on this subject, forgiveness. Now, uh, the other day, out of curiosity, I did a count of the number of sermons I've delivered from this pulpit. And right now, I'm at about the 150 sermons, around the 150, 160 and so, folks, you know, it's, that's 150, 160 hours of Andre that you have uh, experienced. That's a decent TV show series. And so, good job, all of you. Um, and, and, and I don't think this is near, like, uh, an incredible number of sermons where pastors are concerned. But one of my reflections, or even as I consider the number of uh, sermons I delivered, is that I think that typically there are two kinds of sermons that are really hard to deliver. The first kind of sermon is a sermon that involves going into a lot of context, you know, studying the history, you're breaking down ideas, you're going into the Greek, the Hebrew, and many times you can get way too technical, and so probably about 10 minutes in, I'll start to lose some of you and trust me, I know when I lose you, right? Your head starts to like go a bit that way, you go toilet three times in a sermon and all that good stuff, but hey, no, no pressure, no, no, no condemnation. Sometimes I fall asleep when I listen to my sermons as well. Um, so that's a tough one. The second kind of sermon that I find it really hard and challenging to deliver is the opposite. It's the kind of sermon where it feels like everyone has heard it before. You know, if I were to tell you this morning, I'll be preaching to you on John 3, 16. Many of you will be like, yeah, I've heard a sermon on that. I'm familiar with the text. I've seen it work through multiple times. And oftentimes, as the preacher is going through a text like that, you're already writing the sermon in your head. You kind of know where it goes. And oftentimes, it's really hard to concentrate, really hard to lean in or pay attention. And I think sermons on forgiveness kind of falls into that category. Because many of us are familiar with the text. The biblical text involving uh, forgiveness, talking about forgiveness, or we are really familiar with the concept and the idea. And we can very easily tune out of messages like this and think that it is just for somebody else. But I've come to realize, folks, that the teachings of Jesus, the subject of forgiveness, they aren't abstract. They aren't simply good theology. They aren't just ideas that we hold. They have real-world implications. If taken seriously, it affects not just the way we relate with one another, but life as we know it. And so this morning, I want us to intentionally, with our hearts, with our minds, with our attention, to not write off the teachings of Jesus on forgiveness. Do not think of it as something familiar, something to be dismissed. And I want us all this morning to start off with leaning into this question in a renewed way. And this question is... What does Jesus' call and teachings on forgiveness mean for you today?
What does Jesus' call and teachings on forgiveness call scripture, what we read, how Jesus has modeled this life for us? What does it mean for us today in view of certain relationships you had, certain experiences, maybe something that happened this morning, last week or last year? What does it mean for you today? Now, particularly, you know, this is a really poignant moment to be talking about forgiveness because over the last couple of years, where tensions have been high, no doubt, relationships have been affected. Perhaps expectations have been mismatched or unmet. Maybe you sent someone food over circuit breaker and the person didn't give you the customary Instagram post. And you're like, where's my gratitude? Where's my shout out? Where's my post? Or you find yourselves excluded from groups of five and then groups of eight and then groups of 10. And now that everything's opened up, you still don't find yourself invited. And you're like, woe is me. Everybody is something else. Or during extended periods of time at home, words have been exchanged, looks have been exchanged, sentiments have been communicated. Or where in a great moment of trial and adversity, the people you thought would be the most present for you seem strangely absent. Or perhaps you've been hurt, mistreated, or worse, abused by someone you trusted. And so I believe that that for the believer, for those who take the walk of Jesus seriously, we have to continually and consistently revisit this subject, this call to forgiveness on a regular basis. Because first off, forgiveness is absolutely central to followers of Jesus. If Christianity is to be distilled down to one word, it is this, forgiveness. We have been forgiven much, and so we are called to forgive much. We have no faith, no hope, no salvation apart from forgiveness. And two, forgiveness is something, folks, we will find ourselves consistently needing to extend because we live in a broken world full of broken people who perpetuate this brokenness. And all of this brokenness often comes hurt, pain, disappointment. And so by virtue, folks, of living this broken world and proximate to broken people, we find ourselves continually wrestling this call to forgive. So my sermon title this morning is simply this, Forgiving as We Have Been Forgiven. Forgiving as We Have Been Forgiven. Now this morning I'll be working through a passage of scripture from Matthew chapter 18. Uh, I've done this teaching a couple times already. There are a few kind of stories that I'll get into that are inspirational, that, that's meant to kind of provoke some thinking. And so that's how the rest of the sermon go. And then I'll get you out by 12 so you can buy your lunch and go to level 5 at 12.30. Are you with me, folks? Let's read uh, the teaching text this morning from Matthew chapter 18. It's lengthy, but this is the word of the Lord. Verse 21. Then Peter came to him, this Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Quick math, 490. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion released him, and forgave him the debt. Verse 28. But a servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him. This is not the biblical lay hands, but laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into the prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what, he had been, what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgive you, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? 
and his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So, my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart do not, does not forgive his brothers his trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's all pray. Jesus, we thank you for your presence that's in this place. God, you are real and you are near to us. In spite of how we may be feeling this morning, whether tired or lethargic or weary from long weeks of work, Lord, we thank you that your presence is here, regardless of how we may feel. God, we thank you that you honour the gathering of the saints. You honour the teaching of your word. You honour this reading of your holy words, our holy Bible scriptures. So God, we ask, even as we dive into your words this morning, that you illuminate these words. Lord, far be it from us to just leave this place with information. We want a fresh revelation of who you are, Jesus. Cause our eyes to be open to see you clearly, O Lord in the beauty of your magnitude, with your, your, your endless worth, your glory. Help us see, oh God. Help us see clearly. Help us see rightly. God, we thank you that uh, whenever we come to your scriptures, Lord, that you, by your spirit, guide us into all truth. So we yield to you today with our bodies, with our minds, with our hearts, with our attention, with our ears, to hear what you wish to say to us, oh Lord. Speak, your servant, your sons, your daughters are listening. We thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness to us as your people. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, it would have been almost three years ago where my mother got into an accident uh, in a hotel lobby. Uh, she went to this uh, hotel. It's a small hotel, uh, very little rooms, uh, and it housed a TCM clinic uh, in that same hotel compound. I won't say which hotel. Uh, so she got into an accident in this small hotel room, but basically what had happened was uh, the hotel uh, had these like kind of glass panels up uh, and they, they weren't really well marked. Uh, there was no stickers and no labels on it. Uh, and you know, they had just cleaned these panels and as she was kind of navigating the hotel, she walked right smack into one. Uh, and she was, she's a pretty fast walker, my mother, if you've seen her, she's just kind of like, you know, she's driven and knows what she wants. And so she like hits the panel uh, really, really hard. And uh, she had this gash right above her eye and it's a really deep gash and just narrowly missed uh, the eyeball. And so she had to go to the hospital to get, you know, kind of it cleaned up, stitched, and, uh, and all that good stuff. And, you know, when my brother and I got to the hospital, uh, my mom was just recounting the entire accident to us. She was just telling us, like, how she knocked into the thing. And there was no markings, there was no sticker, and all that kind of stuff. And then she go goes on to tell us that while she was bleeding from her eye, uh, she got you know, no assistance from uh, the hotel managers, the duty staff, uh, and, and instead uh, they came to her and they started reprimanding her from being too callous. Uh, why, why you do that? You know, why, why weren't you looking as she was bleeding? And so she didn't get very much attention and ended up needing to go to the hospital uh, on her own. Now, I may not look at it, but I am a classic mummy's boy, and nobody messes with my mother. And so me and my brother, after hearing that uh, in the hospital, we just made a beeline straight for that hotel to confront the manager. And, uh, and I remember on the way there, I was on the phone with Amy, and I was furious, I was so upset, I was angry, and I said these words, I'm going to rain hell on that hotel. <laughs> now, ask me on a theological level, what does rain hell mean? I have no idea. But it best captured the sentiments in my heart. I was like, I'm going to rain hell on them, whatever that means. And so I showed up the hotel room, me and my brother, right? As intimidating as we look. Uh, we went there and we went straight up to the counter and we like demanded to speak to the duty manager. But the duty manager had already left and uh, the staff that were previously present there had all gone home. 
And so we then demanded to see, like, okay, who's in charge, and, and we want to speak to the person. And then out from the back office came this really old gentleman. Uh, his really old guy came out, and I think he was either the general manager of the o- or the owner of, of the establishment. And so he came out, and then we recounted the story to him. And of course, we were really angry. We were really strong with our words. Uh, and, and we were like, you know, how can you do this? How can this happen? You know, da, 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 da. And he was just very apologetic. He kept apologizing, kept apologizing. Uh, and then, you know, after he apologized, I don't think that was very satisfactory to us. And so we berated him even further. We then went on and, and, and started saying, like, how can we do this? You know, maybe you should consider some kind of legal action, blah, blah, blah. And then he apologized again. And then for a third time, we went on and on and on. And at that point, he then suddenly exclaimed and said, I have already apologized to you. What more do you want from me? Now, he said that not with anger or frustration, but with absolute despondency. And, you know, he was desperate. He, he didn't know what more he could do. Now, you know, I think myself and, and I'm sure my brother at that point, you know, as we saw this really old man, you know, and how, you know, defeated he, wa- he was and how despondent he was, you know, our hearts absolutely sank. And so at that point in time, we realized that, you know, we had let our anger get the better of us and, we kind of left uh, really quickly after. Just consider that image, two young men just, you know, being very, very strong with an older gentleman. Uh, we had let our anger get the better of us. Now, I don't know if you have ever experienced something like that in your life. This desire for vindication, for justice, for wrong to be made right. And yet, at the same time, knowing that as followers of Jesus, we are called to a higher standard of love. We are called to a suffering love, a forgiving love, a love that transcends even a desire for vindication. And how often we fall short of that love. Forgiveness, as I said earlier, is at the essence of Christianity, is at the essence of the gospel which Jesus preached. It lies at the heart of the Christian faith. From the adulterous woman who deserved to be stoned, to the Lord's prayer, to the sayings of Jesus on the cross, to the Apostles' Creed, we profess. It is very much what Christianity is about. If there's anything that is to be said about Christians, it is that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Not just between God and man, but between man and man. An author wrote this about Christianity. He said this, The Christian life is a prayer of forgiveness. Forgive us as we forgive them. The Christian life is a suffering cry of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. The Christian life is a commission to forgive. If you forgive anyone, they are forgiven. Dallas Willard once said this, that forgiveness is the most difficult of all of the spiritual disciplines. Forgiveness is integral to our discipleship, to Jesus. It lies at the heart of our faith. We all know that we live in a world polluted with sin, with shame, and relationships in this broken world are often marked with disappointment, with loss and pain. And yet the call of God all through Scripture is that we will grow to be a people who would release those who sin against us and withhold ourselves from this personal right to collect on a moral debt for their offense. This is the call of forgiveness. This is the call of all who follow the way of Jesus. Now let's get into our text in Matthew chapter 18. Now as we read earlier, this, uh, the, the text kind of begins with Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, trying to show off to Jesus, right? We all can imagine this scene. Jesus like, Peter was like, hey, Jesus, like, let's have a quick word. Come over here. You know, and and he then, you know, pulls Jesus aside to have a word with him. Now, it's important for us to note that, G- that Peter here is asking Jesus a very important and theological question. He asked Jesus, like, you know, if my brother sins against me, how often or how much should I forgive him? And then he pulls a number out of the air and said, like, should I forgive him up to seven times? Now, according to rabbinical literature, uh, you only had to forgive a person of up to three times a day. Three times was the, 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 the minimum, uh, the limit. Uh, D.A. Carson, a, a theologian, uh, offers us understanding, helping uh, us understand Peter's question. He says this, in rabbinic discussion, the consensus was that a brother might be forgiven a repeated sin three times. On the fourth, there is no forgiveness. Isn't this great, right? If someone commits a sin, you know, and the fourth time you're like, you're done, no more forgiveness. 
sorry. Peter, though, thinking himself big-hearted, volunteers seven times in answer to his own question. It's a larger figure often used, among other things, as a round number. So Peter was like, wow, this number seven. Like, I read the Old Testament, like, seven seems pretty significant. And so, like, let me give this, like, special Bible number. Like, God, like, seven times. Now, Peter was thinking that he was very generous, and so he doubles the minimum requirement and adds one for good measure. And so seven, seven. However, we notice in the text that instead of responding to Peter, like, Peter, you got it right. Jesus answered, Peter, I tell you not just seven times, but 70 times seven times. 70 times seven, seven times. Now, Jesus in this text is suddenly not indicating that we should keep a strict count and forgive a brother only up to 490 times. And so, you know, if that were the case, then all of us should keep a tally, right, for every relationship you have. And so you go like, okay, offense one, check. And up to the 490th time, no more. No more forgiveness. Rather, Jesus in this occurrence is choosing a much bigger symbolic number than Peter has chosen in order to show us this, that our forgiveness ought to be limitless. Our willingness to forgive ought to be limitless. He's saying to Peter, stop counting, stop keeping score. Now, I'm thankful that Jesus uh, doesn't just end uh, his teaching to Peter with this statement, hey, stop counting, stop keeping store. Jesus, in this occurrence, will offer Peter a story to help him understand. And so we read this story further down the text of a man, of a servant who owed a king a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, some of you might not know what a talent is. No, this talent is not like I can slam dunk or I can, you know, bake a good sourdough. No, that's not kind of talent. A talent uh, in that day was the largest unit of currency uh, in the Greek language. And one day's worth of wages uh, was a denarii, and one talent was equivalent to 6,000 denarii, or 6,000 days of wages. All right, get that? One talent, 6,000 days of wages. And so this man, this servant, owed this king 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. And so I've done the math for you, right? I've done the math. This translates to 60 million days worth of wages. Now, would you venture to guess how long it would take to pay off 60 million days of wages? I've also done the math for you. It will take you 164,000, not days, not years, lifetimes to pay off 60 million days worth of wages. A dollar figure would be somewhere around $6 billion. In short, this man in this parable owed this king an astronomical amount of money. It was a debt not even in his wildest dreams he could pay off. Here the main emphasis of this story is both the greatness of the debt owed and the inability of the man to pay it. For first century hearers of this parable, they'll be laughing as Jesus would quote this figure because no man, no normal man would be able to pay off this debt. And they'll be laughing to themselves, how did this guy rack up such a debt in the first place? Six billion dollars? What did he invest? Okay, this is not very good time to talk about that. I apologize. So the man here is clearly in a desperate situation, which leads him to the actions described in the next verse. Matthew 18, 26 says this, The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. In light of the debt, in light of this astronomical amount of money, he goes to his master and says, Have patience with me, I will pay you all, I'll pay it all off. Here, though, the servant either forgets how much money he owes, or he's being utterly de delusional, or he is just a flat out a liar, or he's being deceptive. But his master, the king, knows that he can never, in, his, in all of his own ability, repay the entire debt. The next verse shows us this Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. He released him and forgave him the debt. Notice here that the master does more for the servant than he asked. The servant asked for some time, more time 
patience for me to kind of like, you know, make some arrangements to pay off this debt. But instead, the master, in hearing the, 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 the servants, the man's cry, forgave him the debt entirely. He did more than was asked. We're told here in the text that he does this out of compassion for the man and his plight, which is just another way of saying that he showed mercy and grace toward the man. He gave the man what he did not deserve. One translation uh, writes this about the, this occurrence. It said that the master cancelled the debt and let him go. Now, this amount is nowhere close to what I would imagine some of your debts are. But imagine your entire housing loan, your car loan, your student loan, your credit cards. It is all wiped away in a moment, in an instant. Wouldn't you be a happy person? Wow, I do not sense the exuberance. What? Okay. <laughs> yes. My dad, uh, my dad is paid. Well, you know, uh, coincidentally, let's look at the response of this guy who had all his debts paid. How did he respond? Imagine, right, folks, shouldn't there be joy? Shouldn't there be jubilation? Shouldn't be, there be happiness and freedom expressed? But this is not how the story ends. The story go, does not end this way. It goes another way instead. We read further in verses 28 to 35 that this man who just had been forgiven all his debt, this astronomical amount of money, he couldn't pay off in of himself. He goes on then to find a fellow servant. And then he chokes him and demands payment for what he is owed. Now, first, when we read the text, we have to notice this, that the man's fellow servant asked for patience, asked for time to pay in the same manner that the man had asked for patience from the king. He also fell down to his feet. He begged him for patience. He, you know, in this parable, used the exact same words to cry out for mercy as the man did in the previous story. Now, one would think that the actions would remind the man of the mercy, the grace that he had experienced, but it did not. The man does not show compassion or mercy towards his fellow servant. Now, the other thing we have to notice is also the difference between the debt that the man owed the king and the debt to which was owed to this man by his fellow servant. The man had owed 10,000 talents, whereas this servant only owed 100 denarii. Now, 100 denarii is still a large amount of money. It's equivalent to 20 weeks' worth of labor. So maybe figure about $12,000 in today's terms. But this is compared to $6 billion in debt. And so can we all agree it's a relatively small amount? Still payable, still large, but it's a small amount. Thus, we can see that the servant in the previous story was forgiven far more than he was asked than he was owed in this story. Now, this illustrates well the position of every believer when we are asked to forgive one another. We folks have been forgiven much. We've been forgiven of a debt that we cannot pay in and of ourselves. But God in His mercy, in His grace through His Son, Jesus, has forgiven you of that debt. And so your call to forgiveness is not just a call that's plucked out of obscurity that you are to do just because it's the right thing to do. But it's because you have been forgiven much. Your debt, astronomical, you cannot possibly pay it in and of yourself with the amount of good works you do in life. That debt is paid and now you are to forgive. Verse 32 says this, Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Notice here that the master calls him a wicked servant. Now, we often think of wickedness as something involving breaking a rule or committing a certain sin or doing a bad thing or engaging in bad behavior. But in this parable, wickedness is simply this. It is not extending the same compassion that you have received to another. To be wicked according to Scripture is to not freely give what you have freely received. Let those words sink in. That where Jesus is concerned, because we have received much, we are then to extend that same compassion, mercy, and grace to others. Now, this parable also teaches us a simple yet powerful truth. And that is this, that you can be forgiven so, so much, 
but still be imprisoned, but still be enslaved, but still be bound. True freedom is not just in receiving forgiveness, it is in extending forgiveness to others. The man of story refused to allow for the forgiveness he had received to overflow from his heart to another. He lives in bondage. The story goes on and tells us that this man was, you know, enslaved, was in bondage because of his unforgiveness, his lack of mercy. Now, there is a price to pay, folks, for non-forgiveness, for not forgiving. Not forgiving gives us this false sense of power. We feel often that we have something over another person. And this person has to kind of like walk on the eggshells around us because of this offense that we keep tight and near to our chest. Not forgiving destroys the soul and the body. Now, research done by the Stanford Forgiveness Project shows that forgiving elevates our mood and increases optimism. Not forgiving, however, is positively correlated with depression, anxiety, and hostility. Now, in their studies, they note that when we don't forgive, when we choose to hold on to a grudge, we release all the chemicals of a stress response. And holding a severe grudge raises our blood pressure and increases our chances of a heart attack. This is all proper scientific studies. Not forgiving also enslaves ourselves and others. I think of this story of Kevin Tunnell, who at 17 years old uh, was driving home from a party. He had been drinking excessively and he was told to no, not drive and consider hitching a cab home and he instead chose not to. And on his way home, he hit a, 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 a girl uh, who was 18 years old, who was just standing one mile outside of a home and he hit her and he killed her. And the parents then, you know, uh, went into a lawsuit uh, with, with this man, with Kevin, uh, to sue for damages. And at one point, you know, the, the, he was looking at about 1.5 million of, uh, of damages that he had to pay. And instead, the parents settled for a small amount in contrast to the amount that they, that they should have been paid. They settled for a figure of $936. Now, of course, Kevin, hearing that, you know, this, this figure is so much smaller than the previous figure, he said, yes. I'll pay off this $936. But it came with certain terms and clauses. The parents requested, and, and part of the settlement was that Kevin had to issue a $1 check to their daughter every Friday, the day she was killed, for 18 years. So every Friday, he had to mail a check in her name. He had to write it down. He had to mail it to her house every Friday for 18 years. And he managed to do so for a number of years. And at some point, he kind of fell through. And he was swiftly brought back into court. In the court proceedings, he, he then said that, that over the years, you know, having to write her name and relive the guilt and shame is unbearable. It's immense and he could do it no longer. He broke down in the courtroom. His parents were then questioned, like, why do you do this? Like, why, why the need for this? And the parents said that we want him to remember. We want him to remember remember what he had done. 936 checks he had to write. Now, the checks you know, might have done that. It might have caused Kevin to remember. For, but for the parents, it did not bring back their daughter. And the only thing it left them was pain and grief that they could not get rid of. Now, folks, I bring out this story because we often do that in communities, even in the Christian community. We go to another person who had wronged us and every time we see that person, we make sure they know that they owe us a debt and we make sure they pay. Be it through a, a look or a statement or a gesture, we want them to know that they have wronged us and they need to pay. Every time I see you, I'm going to remind you of what you have done and what you owe me. But folks, this is so far from the kind of community that Jesus has called us to build. Non-forgiving also poisons the community. Hebrews 12 verse 15 says this, that see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, folks, there are many words to describe sin and offense in the Bible or many kind of pictures we are given in Scripture to talk about sin and offense. It's often referred to as a snare or in this text, a bitter root. And in some texts, it's also referred to as a body of death a body of death. Now the Romans uh, were incredibly innovative and cruel in devising uh, means of execution. The cross, this dark and, and, and ugly and disgusting means of execution. And another lesser known uh, means of execution was the way Romans, the Romans would execute murderers. 
Now, one of the ways they would execute murderers is that they would, uh, you know, uh, upon, you know, uh, pronouncing uh, the sentence upon a murderer, they would take the corpse of the person that was murdered and chain it to the murderer. Uh, the historical accounts kind of differ. You know, some would say they chained it literally face to face. Uh, most would say that they would chain the body of the deceased, the person that was murdered, onto the back of the murderer. And the murderer would be then sentenced for the rest of his life to carry that body of death. And what often happened as a result of that is that this murderer would be excommunicated from the community. No one would be around this man. The stench would be far too overpowering, overwhelming. The murderer couldn't move. He wasn't as mobile because he literally had a body, all that weight on him. And over time, the, the, the body would rot and decompose and the toxins would begin to seep into this murderer and he would die a slow, painful death, carrying a body of death. Now, this is really graphic and really hard to imagine. But I often think that is what unforgiveness is like for the believer. It's carrying around this body of death and allowing it to slowly poison us. We are excommunicated from community. We can no longer move freely. But the difference from that story and, and from that account and, and, and us is that oftentimes we are the ones who choose to willingly carry this body of death. We're not sentenced to it. We sentence ourselves to this slow, painful death. It's often said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die from it. Now let's circle back to Peter and Jesus. Now the point that Jesus is trying to make to Peter through this parable and teaching is this, that followers of Jesus are to be characterized by forgiveness. Not forgiveness that has a limit or a bound seven times, but a kind of forgiveness that knows no bounds. We are to be known as a forgiving people. It is to be our default operating system. Dallas Willard says this about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a tiny inward act which a discrete effort of will brings forth in response to specific types of occasions. Rather, it is part or product of an overall orientation of lives of a certain kind which is there before any occasion or whether or not any occasion ever arises. That is the goal of our spiritual maturity, folks, to grow to be a forgiving people. During the Armenian genocide of 1915 to 1917, uh, it was said that 1.5 half million Armenians were murdered by the Ottoman Turks. Millions more were raped, brutalized, and forcibly deported. Now, from the genocide comes this famous story of a Turkish army officer who had led a raid upon an Armenian home. Uh, the parents were killed, and the daughters were brutally raped and then given over to the soldiers. The officer uh, kept the oldest daughter for himself and uh, over time she managed to escape and get away from uh, captivity and she was able to pursue a career in nursing. And she, she trained to become a nurse and in an ironic twist of fate, she found herself working in a ward for wounded Turkish army officers. And one night she saw among her patients the face of the man who had murdered her parents and so horribly wronged her and abused her sisters and herself. Now, the doctor said to her that without exceptional nursing and care, this man would die. And this is what the nurse gave, exceptional care. As the officer began to recover, a doctor pointed uh, to the nurse and told the officer, if it weren't for this woman, you would be dead. The officer looked at the nurse and then muttered these words, have I met you before? Have we met? And she replied a soft, yes. After a long silence, the officer realized who she was and said, why did you not kill me? And the Armenian girl, who at this point was a follower of Jesus, replied, I am a follower of him who said, love your enemies. Now in this story, you read that for this nurse and this woman who has been through so much tra tragedy, that no further explanation was necessary beyond what she said. For her, forgiveness was not an option. It was a requirement for those who follow Jesus. The question for us today, you know, in light of this story, in light of all that we face in life is this, do we carry that same manner of conviction as it pertains to forgiveness? Do we see the practice of forgiveness as being synonymous with following Jesus, with the Christian faith? Martin Luther King would say this, that it is not a choice between forgiveness or unforgiveness, but our choice is between forgiveness and non-existence. And by that, he means our faith. It's either we are a forgiving people or faith simply does not exist. 
Now, folks, if we enter the Christian faith to find forgiveness, then shouldn't we li also lift the assumption that in order to fully embrace the life of a believer, we need to walk in that same forgiving love? Brad Jersak, a theologian and pastor, says this, that Christ's teachings and Christ's death on the cross are not two separate issues. Christ's way, the narrow path, is the road of loving and forgiving even unto death. And he didn't say, let me do that for you. He said, come, die with me. To follow Jesus is to embrace the way of suffering love, of non-retaliation, of forgiveness. Now, folks, whenever the topic of forgiveness is broached in the church, it always comes across and, and people kind of land on one or two extremes. See that we go, okay, all the pain, all the tragedy you've experienced, all of the hurt, the disappointment, yeah, you don't get to have that anymore. And we emotionally bypass real legitimate pain and we just call people to forgive because that is the right thing to do. Or the other extreme is that we sentimentalize so much of the call of Jesus. And we go like, yeah, you know, like th there's this circumstance and there's this stuff that happened and, you know, we must understand and we must kind of take it slow. And we often make excuses for holding on to our offense and bitterness and utterly ignoring the call and teachings of Jesus. One of two extremes. But folks, do not be mistaken in this teaching. Forgiveness is not ignoring. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not diminishing. Forgiveness is not condoning. Forgiveness is not suppressing. Forgiveness is not justifying. Forgiveness is not excusing. Forgiveness is not retrusting. Forgiveness is not understanding where the person came from. Forgiveness is not reconciling with the offender. Forgiveness is simply this. It is to release. It's to release. The Greek word for forgiveness is apollo, and it literally means this, to let go, to give up, to release, all my favorite, to cancel, to cancel. And this is the kind of cancel culture we need in our world today. The cancellation of debt, of wrong, of offense, of bitterness. Tim Keller says this, that whenever a wrong is done to another, a debt is formed that needs to be paid. And it kind of leads to one or two options. It's either one, we make them pay. We make the other pay. Someone cuts you off in traffic, you, you know, show them a certain appendage. Uh, you know, someone, you know, uh, says a mean thing to you, you retaliate. Someone gives you a rude gesture, you respond back. You make them pay tit for tat, an eye for an eye. Or the alternative is this, we pay it ourselves. We pay this debt, this wrong that was done to us, we pay it ourselves. Instead of retaliating and being satisfied by bloodlust and vengeance, we instead, as followers of Jesus, choose to deny ourselves the joys, the satisfaction that comes from vengeance and instead extend mercy. Gary Brashear says this about forgiveness, that it is the personal act to release the one who sinned against me from my personal right to collect on the moral debt, to pay them back for their offense. Instead of giving them back the pain they gave me, I absorb the pain into myself with God's help. This is forgiveness. Ronald Roheiser says this, that any pain or tension that we do not transform, we will retransmit. In the face of jealousy, anger, bitterness, and hatred, we must be like water purifiers, holding the poisons and toxins inside of us and giving back just the pure water, rather than being like electric cords that simply pass on the energy that flows through them. Now catch that first line, whatever we do not transform, we will retransmit. Have you ever met a person like that or are you a person like that? Someone who carries the weight of offense, bitterness in your heart. And have you not seen that affect relationships that are proximate to you? Now I love uh, his picture, this picture of a water filter, water purifier. Many of you don't know that, that was my first job. At 17 years old, I sold water purifiers. Yeah, ask me about that later. But this is what a water purifier does, right? It takes what is dirty, contaminated, full of toxins, and it turns it and purifies it into something that satisfies, that washes, that cleanses, something that is of use. And don't we see this picture in the person of Jesus? 
Mark's gospel, we read of this Roman officer, this centurion who stood at the foot of the cross and after witnessing all that he did, and all that was done to Jesus, after seeing the Son of God crucified on the cross, the way that he died, he said this, truly this man must be the Son of God. Now this Roman centurion at this point in his career would have undoubtedly seen hundreds if not thousands of executions of men dying on the cross. What was so different about Jesus? What was so different about the way this man died that would lead to this centurion going, truly this man must be the son of God? For one, Jesus did not resist, resist his crucifixion. He embraced it wholeheartedly. And for two, beaten, mocked, and scorned, humiliated, shamed, and in pain, he uttered these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I would like to propose to you this, that no man had ever on the cross professed words of forgiveness for the very ones who were doing the deed of evil against him. No one had ever died with professions of love and forgiveness on their lips. And his only explanation, this centurion, was that this Nazarene, this man being crucified for a crime he did not commit, must be divine. It was a transcendent love of love, forgiving love. That alone could persuade a Roman centurion that this man must be the son of God. Folks, this is a great paradox of our faith, that there is beauty to be found in the cross. Now, the Romans devised crucifixion to be this utterly vile and evil thing that in society, you couldn't even mention crucifixion. It was such uh, an evil and a gross term and it was so designed to be, it was designed to be so evil and so uh, dark that it would sear into the minds of all who were watching it the, sh- the, tra- the, the severity of crime, the severity of punishment. Now, 2,000 years ago, it would be utterly inconceivable for the Roman, for the Roman cross to be regarded as an object of beauty, as an icon of grace. But because of Jesus' forgiving love, because he extended mercy even when others didn't deserve it, that symbol of darkness, of evil, has been now transformed into that which is beautiful. That's Jesus, and we see that, don't we? We see Jesus in, in spite of being able to retaliate and offer vengeance, choosing to end the cycle and instead offer mercy and grace. That's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. Hans-Jörg von Balthasar, theologian, says this, that being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. In Jesus, we see this. Beauty, grace, and mercy found in forgiveness. Now, I, I, I want to shift directions uh, pretty drastically uh, uh, as we take this to a landing real shortly. But I do want to take some time, you know, uh, you know we're talking about forgiveness and, and mercy and, and being a, a community rid of offense or bitterness and being able to talk to one another, you know, when, when there are transgressions and bring ourselves to a point of reconciliation. And I just want to, you know, take some time to talk to a group of people that may or may not be here uh, in this room in our community. Now, one of the demographics that we see uh, come and be part of our church, uh, not, not in just in the last couple of years, but since our inception was that our old church uh, really had a lot of growth that came as a result of people leaving former church environments. Uh, I think many of you here had grew up either in a certain kind of a tradition or you were part of a church community and you wanted a different expression, a uh, different kind of uh, setting, and you came over to the city. Now, we, we so love that, and, and I want to acknowledge and recognize that, that that is a really normative thing, uh, that sometimes as kind of needs and, and seasons change and preferences change, uh, people do leave uh, com- faith, certain faith communities for another. It's really normal, uh, especially in a city like ours. But can I just say something that, that from my experience, uh, it is one of the most heartbreaking things that I have uh, experienced uh, is, you know, sometimes I, I go around and I, I preach in different churches. And sometimes, you know, when I, when I stand in front and I deliver a message, I see a face uh, in the hall and that face, of the, that person looks like he's, I was like, hey, I thought that person is in our church. And then uh, and I go up and, and the person's like, oh no, I, I left already. 
And, and, and let me just say that that's one of the, the most like, heartbreaking things to discover. Like you, you don't know when people leave and people kind of leave suddenly uh, through the back door. And you know, uh, and because you know, this is such a normative part of uh, what it means to be the church these days, people kind of move around. Uh, so there's this thing that we do uh, in our membership class. Uh, we have this segment towards the end where we talk about how do you leave the city. Really strange thing to offer uh, during a membership class. We talk about how do we leave the city. And so there are three elements there. The first, you know, it's talk to a pastor. You know, it could be a time where you give feedback or just offer gratitude and thanks for the number of years that the pastor has kept for you. Uh, two, it's to bless for the pastoral team to get around you, to bless you. And the third thing is to comment, to write a letter of commendation for you, uh, for your new church. Why am I bringing up all this? Now, I want to implore all of you or, the, or some of you who have left your previous church environment and you have done so uh, because you know, something happened or there was a disagreement with uh, your church pastor, your leader, or someone in the community, to not allow for that bitterness to lay root in your heart. It is our passion and our desire to not just have a full hall, a full church, but for every single one of our members to have full lives full heart, a full soul. And so I want to implore you, you know, in light of all that we've talked, spoke about in forgiveness, to take some time to reflect upon this. Are there pastors, are there church leaders, are there people in the previous environment that you came from that you need to forgive, that you need to extend mercy to, to rid yourself of bitterness? Now, in closing, I want to talk about how do we forgive well, and this is a few steps that I think will be beneficial for us to even consider. First of all, it's, it's to recognize, to recognize the ways that we have been wrong, to recognize what happened, the instance that happened, the grievance, uh, to name it. Uh, at this point, you know, uh, one of the things that, that, uh, that, you know, in marriage counseling or when you kind of walk through people uh, with marital issues, one of the things that you are told to avoid saying is the, are the words always and never. Like he always like that one or he never like that one. Those are non-specific. It's not helpful. And so one of the things that we, we, we need to do in learning to forgive well is to recognize, to recognize specifically what happened, the grievance and the incidents. Next thing we are to do is to remember, to remember. Now this is important. It's where we remember what God has done for us. We position ourselves in this moment not as victims of another, but as a fellow offender before God who had sinned as well. Now, this changes our posture because we are then led to ask, you know, is there any pride in us? Is there any wrong in us in this instance? And oftentimes, you know, when, when I kind of walk through this myself, I take some time to reflect on some of the classic sins and offenses that I've committed against other people. And it reminds myself that the person that I'm offended with, they're, they're not just another person. They're a fellow sinner trying to walk out the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of God in community. The next thing that we have to do is to release to release. Forgiveness is costly. Someone has got to pay the price. And as Christians, we would say this, I will bear the price. I will bear the cost. Even though this transgression was done to me, even though I have a right to collect on the debt, I will pay this cost. The last thing we have to do is this, to resolve. To resolve, to maintain this verdict of forgiveness, of mercy, of grace upon the other. There's a thing that we do uh, in my marriage and it's this, that when we say, I forgive you, we then you know, make this covenant to not bring up this issue or this uh, uh, transgression as ammunition for future quarrels. And so, you know, there's this thing where like, Amy was like, yeah, okay, I'm fine. And I was like, no, you did not say forgive you. And it's like, yeah, but I said, I'm fine. And I was like, no, you did not say forgive you. So the moment she says, I forgive you, I was like, I got you. You cannot bring it up anymore. Uh, but I think that's the kind of you know, mindset and, and, and approach we are to carry in life with regards to the relationships that we have. When we choose to forgive, we choose to not pick up the stones again. Now in closing, I want to talk about the Moravians. The Moravians are perhaps my favorite community in all of human history apart from this one. Um, the Moravians are this amazing missionary people. And uh, at some point you know, uh, in their missionary journeys, they reached a roadblock. They were ministering to uh, to Eskimos in northern Canada. Do you want to adjust this? Okay. They were ministering to uh, Eskimos in northern Can Canada, and uh, they hit this roadblock because uh, they didn't, the, 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 the Eskimos did not have a word for forgiveness. 
And so how can you, in preaching the gospel, talk about the forgiveness of sins, talk about Christ having to die to forgive your sins when there is simply, seemingly no way to talk about forgiveness? And so there was nothing for it, right? And so the Moria missionaries, they worked to help the Eskimos understand this concept, this idea of forgiveness. And at some point in their ministry, they coined this new word for forgiveness. And the new word they coined for forgiveness is this word. Iso mije jo jang naina mik. What a powerful word for reconciliation. Right, just saying that just brings breakthrough, right? What a powerful and formidable assembly of letters. Iso mije jo Now, in, in, in Eskimo language, this strange new word simply meant this. Do not be able to think about it anymore. Do not be able to think about it anymore. That is the word for forgiveness. That's the idea. That's what forgiveness does, that as far as the east is from the west, it doesn't come up. No longer do I hold it against you. And so we are coming back to that question that we started off with. What does Jesus' call and teachings of forgiveness mean for you today? Is there a spouse you need to forgive? Is there a parent you need to forgive? Step-parent, grandparent? Is there a broken relationship with a son or a daughter? Is there a sibling, family member, business partner, co-worker, trusted friend or stranger? Maybe today you're holding something against God or the church or a pastor. Or maybe you're holding something against yourself holding yourself captive today. And today, perhaps there's a sin that you've committed that you think that there's no way I can be forgiven for this. And God says to you this day that your debts are forgiven. They are paid. I hold you to your trespasses no longer. You are forgiven. And because you have been forgiven much, you can now go on to forgive others. In closing, let's read a couple of passages of Scripture as I have the band come back up on stage. Everyone, please stand as we read this together. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says this, that when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Chapter 3 says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, and humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. One of the most compelling things that I read in all scripture is that the Son of Man who rose from the grave would for all eternity bear the scars of the cross. For all eternity, he would bear these scars from that horrible, heinous act, that transgression against the Son of God. He would bear those scars. And what do those scars say? It says this, it says, though I am sinless, Though I am without sin, I am the son of God, yet the world crucified me. But I do not hold it against the world. I forgive you. And those scars become testaments of the mercy, the kindness, the grace, the redemptive love, the forgiveness of God. And that is possible with the wounds that we carry through the years, through our relationships, through our experiences. That these wounds, if we allow for the balm of God for his love to meet us. These wounds can turn into scars and those scars can turn into stories of redemption. So this morning, you know, uh, even in light of all that you've heard, this call to forgiveness, my charge you this morning isn't go, hey, go forgive people. Like, go on a forgiving spree. Just go and call out all these people that offend you and say, I forgive you. No. Um, you want to do that? Sure, by all means. But this morning, you know, my, my charge for you this, is this, simply this to receive and remind yourself of God's forgiving love that's been extended toward you. In spite of your transgressions, your unfaithfulness, in spite of the many times you've walked away, God's love is still for you. 
in spite of how little you may feel about yourself, in spite of how dark your thought life is, in spite of all that you have done, God's forgiving love is for you. So these, this day, you know, in, in light of all that we've heard, we choose to posture ourselves this morning to receive of love such that we may be a vehicle of love to our world that needs it. So can I ex- ask you to just put our hands before you this morning as just a gesture and act. Say, God, I want to receive of your love. I want to be reminded and refreshed and renewed. God, I thank you that my debts are fully paid, that you hold me to my transgressions no longer. God, I thank you for your forgiving love, your love that overwhelms and overtakes. God, you've forgiven me of a debt that I cannot pay. And this day, my heart rejoices with gratitude. And so God, I ask even as we receive your love this morning, may you help us grow to be a people who love well, who forgive well, who extend mercy, such that we may be your conduits of love, such that we may represent you well. We want to walk in your way, Jesus, well. We want to forgive as you have forgiven us. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. In your name we pray.